Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today, we are privileged to be joined by Rev. Yaakov Feitman, the longtime Rav of Kihilas Beis Yehuda Tzvi of Cedarhurst, and the author of the brand new Art Scroll book, Blueprints. Thank you, Rabbi Feitman, for joining us. Thank you, Rabbi Hissiger. It's a pleasure to be here in the land of Art Scroll. First of all, I must ask, how is the Rav and Rebetzin, how are the Rav and Rebetzin feeling? Baruch Hashem, we're all post-COVID. The Rebetzin can still use a Refor Shalema, so uh, this will be a schus for her for her Refor Shalema. Amen, Yishev. Arichas, Yom and Vishonim. And thank you for coming out to beautiful Art Scroll headquarters for this conversation. We're very excited about the release of your new book, Blueprints. So let's start there before we delve into the background, before we talk about your blueprint. What was the goal in writing this book and how did you compile it? So the truth is that this um, goal, as you say, and the book itself has been germinating somewhere in the back of my head and my heart and other places for many, many years, probably decades. I, I've always felt that there's a Zayra Kaddish in Parshas Truma. It's mentioned in the introduction to the book. Istakel Boiraisa Ubara Alma. Everybody knows the line. Hashem created the world, but before he created the world, he wrote the Torah. Then he looked into the Torah and he created the world. So what is that? That's a blueprint. Kaddish made the blueprint and then he looked into the blueprint. So I've always felt that there are many, many daily examples of that, that you can look into the Torah and all of a sudden a, a light pops up, a, a light shines, and you're, you understand something that not only you never understood before, but most of the world has never understood before. And, and that's really the essence of the book. The entire book is all about blueprints that will help us to understand the world. Now you are currently also a Yatet columnist, uh, where your column appears every week. And the style of the book kind of mirrors the style of your columns where you intersperse some very deep thoughts from Yerashiva, Rav Yitzchak as well as other G'dayli Torah. And you share stories and vignettes and insights. Walk us through how you compile your articles, and in this case, the chapters, of being able to balance sometimes heavy material with really light and enlightening and easy-to-read type of stories and anecdotes. So the truth is that, that a good deal of the book, but not all of the book, was um, published already, not in this exact form, because there's a lot of chidush in the way that the book was published, and under the auspices of art school, it got, kept getting better and better through various uh, editors, especially Mrs. Heimowitz, writing for Meretz Yisrael, but very wonderful people, Rabbi Zlatowitz, of course, so when they began, some of them began in um, Mishpacha, some of them, as you said, in the Ated, the last couple of years, and then there's others that are totally new. So what really happens to me is, I either read about something or I hear about something either on the radio or some other medium. Now that I've published Baruch Hashem very often in all of these media, in uh, the Ated and Mishpacha, people send me things. Sometimes now my own children send me things. And when I see something, I say, oh, the Torah talks about that. And then I try in my mind to come up, usually it's a Chazal. The Chazal gives birth to the Rishonim. The Rishonim give birth to the Achroinim on that subject. And all of a sudden, bingo, there's an article. So the, the, the key over here is that articles have a certain limitation. You can't write more than 
I'm, I'm sure you've heard this from Rabbi Lipschitz often, and your own articles are beautifully short. Mine are unfortunately a little bit longer, but they tend to be around 1,500, 1,600 words. words. So each one of the chapters or of the, the subjects, the columns, are about that long. They try to examine a, uh, a world phenomenon that uh, everybody's talking about. If you want, I'll give you some examples. Sports, for instance, music other things in the world, and what the world philosophers or theologians say about it, and then we try to look with Torah eyes at what the Torah says about it. Now, what I liked about the way the book is formulated is that you start each chapter with a blueprint and then an application. So before the reader even attempts to read the chapter, they know kind of what your direction is going to be, and that kind of helps them navigate it. I think that's something that I learned actually from the Ated and, and wonderful places like that. There's a teaser, and, and it's supposed to be a little bit of a farce buys, an appetizer, so that people will want to read this. And the, the key is that it's practical. It's pragmatic and hopefully helps people in their lives. Absolutely. So speaking of blueprints, anyone who's read your writings, and I want to tell you the other day I was somehow looking through some old uh, archived uh, articles from years ago, and I see Rabbi Feitman, an article from the 1980s in the Jewish Observer, and here I am, I'm thinking to myself, I was probably two, three years old when that article came out, and Kenai Nahari, you're still writing so many years later um, using the medium of writing uh, and language. I'll, I'll get it one of these days. <laughs> I'm, I'm working on it. One of these days, I'll, I'll get there. You'll get it right. Baruch Hashem, you've done a wonderful job. Your blueprint of your life People who have read your writings know that you're a very prominent Talmud of Rabbi Yitzchak at Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Chaim Berlin. Many people may not know how you got there. Could you provide some background where you grew up and where you spent your formative years before you got to Rabbi Huttner? Well, I, I was actually born in Germany um, almost right after the war, 1948, and um, my Parents, Aleim HaShalom, sent me to uh, Chaim Berlin, and eventually I actually went to Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway for a while, for Masifta. But even Yeshiva of Eastern Parkway, which was an outgrowth, we've recently all been uh, also commemorating the yard site of Rabbi Silber's Atzal. So Rabbi Silber was also a Talmud of the Rosh Yeshiva. And when the Yeshiva Eastern Parkway Masifta began, the Yeshiva, unlike he went out of his comfort zone, he never spoke outside of the yeshiva. He said a mimer in the yeshiva, and it changed my life. He, he, he said one of the mimerim that's printed in the Igrois Uksavim Pachad Yitzchak was called Tevla Gevaki Sa'el Ben Urav, and it changed my life. I had to get to know him. And then Ramatl Weinberg Zatzal was also my Rosh Hashiva and my Rebbe. And at, he, at he, Eastern Parkway. At Eastern Parkway. And he sent me to go talk to the Rosh Hashiva in learning. So I was petrified. How old were you at the time? Uh, Twelve. Well? <laughs> Twelve. Okay. Twelve years old. Twelve years old. Twelve-year-olds should actually not go to see Rav Hutner. <laughs> it was probably not a good idea. I was petrified. So I'll just tell you one funny story that I've never actually told. But that gave me a taste of what was hap- going to happen for many, many decades afterwards. So I said a shtickle taira, and I was very proud of it, because I said a chiddish on top of Rav Shimon Shkop. But I didn't say Shkop. I said, Un Reb Shimon Zokt. And I remember the Roshiva said to me, Velch Reb Shimon, Bar Yoichoi. So, so he, he knew exactly what I was saying. But the, the edge in his voice told me that, first of all, I should have said the Mishnah and the Gemara and maybe a Rishon and then gotten to a Reb Shimon Shkup. And second of all, who do you think you are saying over Reb Shimon Shkup? So I got all that instantly. 
but but it opened up a doorway, uh, uh, actually a passage that really Baruch Hashem still continues in my learning from Rav Hutner. That's all. So you meet Rav Hutner at age twelve. You make your attempt at sharing a Rav Shimon. What, what was the next step? So the next step was that he called me back. I, I was just supposed to say something uh, that Reb Weinberg wanted me to say, which was a Reb Shimon Shkup in, in uh, Masech Tuxubis. Uh, but then the Roshiva called me back. I, I was astounded. And um, uh, somehow or other, almost the next, I was a little bit older than at that time. I, I was a teenager. And he was also asking me already to translate my marim and to submit them to him. He was already at that young age. Yes, yes. So had that, it, so that when I was when I was a little bit older than in mid twenties, so he was he was asking me to translate things that he either told me privately one on one, and then um, the the real part of that connection and that relationship was when he spoke to the Menahalim. That was the famous non-Holocaust talk, right. because he didn't like the word Holocaust, but he said the Chor ben Europa wasn't even a mimer, it was a, 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 a teaching moment for all the Menahalim, and then Rabbi Chaim Foyman, Zechron Levracha, and I translated it, but then Chaim gave it over to me to edit as per the Rosh Hashiva. So I want to get to the Holocaust piece, yeah. which is a, a historic, seminal piece from the Rosh Hashiva. But uh, let's go back again. You're a teenager. You joined Chaim Berlin, right. ninth grade. Right. right. No, no, ninth grade. Actually, oh, ninth. ninth through twelfth, I was in in, in you Yeshiva were still Parkway. Parkway. And then I went for one zman. But after you had that. spoken to Rav Hutner at age twelve when you were still then, when you were still yeah, at, I, at Eastern Parkway. I was or? still at Eastern Parkway. Uh-huh. Right. So right. it wasn't right. until till later that right. you finally joined Chaim Berlin. Right. Then, How did Rav Hutner know that you had an ability to put into writing to his satisfaction? His Torah. That's a wonderful question. Adayom, I don't know the answer, but, but we conversed, and, and we conversed in Yiddish. But every once in a while, he would throw me an English word, <clears throat> and then I, I had to respond in English because it was, the way that he was speaking to me was, uh, required an English language response. And then I, I, I'm assuming that based upon that, he derived or deduced that I could write. Um, and then much later, he, he gave me something. It was a very difficult thing to do. Um, he gave me something that somebody else had translated. And um, I knew this wasn't his style. Mm-hmm. So he asked me, What do you think of it? It was very difficult because I, I was much younger than the person that had translated it. And I said, uh, it was very accurate. So he said, Yankel, accurate is the correct word. But um, I believe he, he, he may have used the word poet, poetry. I, don't, I think that was the first time I heard the word poetry from him. But is it also poetry? So I said, mm-hmm. And then he asked me to rewrite the whole thing. So he told me at the time, the line was, he, he didn't even look at me. He was like, I think, um, talking to himself. I think, but, but he was too smart to just do that, knowing that I was listening, so it was for me also. said, Ich red zu poetry und sie wach für mir prose. And he didn't want that. It's obviously the, the mamorim are beautiful poetry, poetic. And, and by the way, the letters, if you go through the igris of the Rosh Hashiva Zatzal, when he was a teenager, he wrote like... Um, I don't want to say Rabbi Yudah Levi, I don't know if, if that's the comparison, but he wrote like an elder poet. Wow. 
It was incredible. And he was just writing letters to his parents. And he didn't want that to be lost in translation, that beautiful poetic style. But what's interesting is that he critiqued your writings in English, even though English wasn't his mother tongue. And there's a story in my family that uh, it's told over that my grandfather, Tzuyuda Harry Hiziger, who was an East New Yorker, when he heard that the Rashiva came to America, the first thing he did was make a beeline to his in-law's house, the Rashiva's in-laws, and he walked in and found Rav Hutner holding a dictionary, teaching himself English. So I think it's fascinating that the Rashiva had that ability, that knack for language, to master a language that wasn't his mother tongue, as I mentioned, and to be able to critique it, and he knew what he was looking for. You know, the, the Rashiva Zatzal, this, this may be famous, I don't know, but maybe a lot of people don't know this. The Rashiva wrote a perush on Rabbeinu Hillel on Safra. And, and um, not only a perush on it, but, but parts of it that were almost not published, maybe they weren't published. So he taught himself an Italian script. It was written in an Italian script. And he taught it to himself. So I remember once he said to me, we were talking about, I asked him if I could go to college. My parents wanted me to go to college. I was the child of Holocaust survivors, and they were all worried. So he said, it's not necessary. Ich bin doch ein Autodidakt, he said. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but if you go to college, you won't know that word. So that was, <laughs> he, he, an autodidact, for those that don't know, is a self-taught person. So, so, so he was telling me, basically, that you don't need college even to be an educated person. And, uh, and, and that, that he taught himself, that Italian script, and I think more than that, I think he may have actually taught himself Italian at the time, I don't remember. Just to be able to publish the Rabbeinu Hillo on Safra. Oh. Now, that, how often was he asking the Rav to write his writings in English? How often did that come up? So, so, so in the early years, not that much, but, but much later, I, I think it may have begun in the... Um, 1970s, I published a translation of a Sephardi Sefer on the Esamakis. So it's called Out of the Iron Furnace. I believe it's out of print, but uh, it, it people spend a lot of money for some, some reason. It's a translation of Rebbe Yezeb ben David. And I gave one to the Rosh Hashiva, and after that, he started calling me a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, that led us to the, um, the Holocaust. Uh, one that you, you alluded to that we'll talk about later, and other things as well that he asked me to translate. Now, the seminal piece on the Holocaust was really the uh, Rosh Hashiva's view on a period of time that I guess people of that generation were grappling with to understand, to understand the Tairash Kafa, to understand how it should be taught. What was it like when you sat down with the Rosh Hashiva and he first presented to you what he wanted, and what was the process of putting that together? Well, the, the process actually was, was initially easy, and then it became much more difficult. The Roshiva spoke. This was a spoken thing, and as I said, Rabbi Foreman Zatzal took excellent notes, and he gave me his notes, and I had my own. I really did not take notes. I was just listening very intently at the time. Um, so Roshiva wanted some, something more, a little bit more poetry, as I said, and also he wanted to add some uh, material that was not in the original. So he said to me, um, Yankel, uh, come to my house on such and such a, 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 a day. It was, I forgot what day it was, but I will never forget, we spent seven hours on this in a row. And it turned out I was very sick that day. The Shiva told me when to come. I had a very high fever. 
And somewhere along the way, he said to me, Yaakov Asimitivos. I said, Rebbe, I don't feel well. So he said, Yeyaheim. <laughs> so after the seven hours, so I came back a few days later when I was feeling better, and then we did more. And there was a total of probably, uh, I would imagine, like, at least 10 hours of, of, of total discussion about it. And I, um, he had me, asked me to submit a manuscript on this, which he critiqued, both on substance, style, and language, as you mentioned. What year was this? And, what, year, um, what year are we talking? 1970s. Um, mm -hmm. Probably 77, something like that. So it's only so, four, four years before his patera. Yes, it was, it was a couple of years before the patera, right. Mm -hmm. I believe that's what it was. And, um, and then it was published to um, some acclaim and to a great deal of criticism and a great deal of emotion really? because the, the Roshiva didn't pull any punches and he blamed whoever he, he felt had to be blamed and he defended the Gedali Yisrael. And in fact, he told me privately, but then later on we printed, I'll tell you in a minute how that happened, that the whole reason that he said that mimer to all the Menalim was to defend the covet of the, the Rosh Yeshivas and Rabbanim and, and Admoirim that did not tell everybody to leave Europe. So was that, give us a synopsis of the, that was his goal in writing. What's a synopsis of that particular piece? Well, there are many parts to it. I'll focus maybe on one of them. So one opinion of the so-called you know, Holocaust, he didn't like that word, and I'll start with that, was because his thesis and his das Torah was that you can't give an event in Jewish history a name of its own, and he said nobody ever did it before. There was Tachvatat, there was the uh, Spanish Inquisition Crusades. and expulsion, the Crusades, but these were secular names. Our name for everything is Chorban, and therefore there's a continuum, a connection between all the Chorbanas. So he said if you want to say Holocaust, and that's this particular 39 to 45 years, so you have to also say Chorban Europa. And, and by the way, he was pale. He actually accomplished what, I, I won't say everybody, but many of the schools that afterwards started teaching what's called Holocaust studies switched it to Chorban Irapa. All the good, the better Beis Yaakovs and the, the, the yeshivas that, that dealt with us. Not the so Shoah. The Shoah was... No, Shoah he didn't Shoah, like Holocaust either. Yeah, because like. Shoah also, in fact, the reason that he didn't like the word Shoah, because Shoah, he said, is a sudden eruption. It's like a, an earthquake or a volcano. It's, 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 a, it's a tempest, but it's not a continuation of events that the Rabbi Nishlam brings upon Kalal Yisrael. His, his line was, which I wrote and translated, as leaked of Yidin at So Teichacha results in Chorben, if we don't listen. There's, there's of course, in B'chukaisei Teilechel, and in Chas V'Shalom, in B'chukaisei Loi Teilechel. So his point was, and, and he felt that this is such a yesod that everybody has to know and live with. And he said, fathers have to teach it to their children, mothers have to teach it to their children, that we have resting upon our shoulders, Klal Yisrael, this Teichacha. And therefore, there's no blame. You can't do blame. And in this, he was critical, but we didn't say names, of those G'daylim that said, kind of like he didn't like the Mipnei Chato Enu, even though that's what the Torah says, but the Roshiva said that we're not in the VM to pinpoint which Avera is the results in which Einish, mm -hmm. in which punishment. So therefore, his point was that there is 
in Jewish history a, a, a moment that we, we, we all of a sudden, the Rosh decides to, uh, it, it might be a cumulative effect, to bring upon us something terrible, but you can't blame that generation necessarily. And that went against many, many other very wonderful people. He didn't, you know, he didn't have anything against them other than he disagreed with them on this point. But the problem was that some of the survivors did not take it well, mm -hmm. even though he, he never blamed them. On the contrary, he told me when I started going into Chinuch and then on the verge of going into Rabbanus, I, I, I didn't actually go into Rabbanus when he was alive, but I was toying with it, and he gave me guidelines and rules and regulations. So he told me, never talk to survivors about this because wow. they, they can't handle it emotionally and just coddle them and love them and give them chizuk. So this was for the next generation to understand the proper right, hashkafa right. of it. And once it was written and the reshiva approved it, now you were going to disseminate it. How did you do that? So, so what happened was like this. It, 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 it was an article in the Jewish Observer and, um, by uh, Rabbi Chaim Foreman and Yaakov Feitman. And, and it went all over the world. It was like what, what they would call today viral. They didn't say that word in those days. Now it means everything else. But it went all over the place. And there was a great deal of criticism. Mostly people did not, did, did not understand it. They reacted viscerally. Wow. And the Shiva did a chazar, what he called a chazara on the mimer. And that, I think by then Rabbi Foreman wasn't involved. And then I, I translated and wrote that. So, like a rebuttal, almost like a rebuttal yes, but, to the but, critique. Yes, but the didn't want it to be read as a rebuttal. So in the process of Chazara, and he said, he said to me, Ven mechazet lent mevaita, and, mm -hmm. and there's new things. So then, I, that I wrote up by myself. When Rabbi Wolpin, Zechon Levracha, published this in the book, which was called um, A Path Through the Ashes, right. and it's a wonderful book, forget about this, I mean, it's the Roshiva, but it's also Rav Gifter is in there, and many, many other wonderful G'dali Yisrael. So, so the Roshiva's piece is not separated from the um, Chazara, it becomes footnotes. So that, that, and the Rashiva proved that, 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 that Derek, and he looked it over, and he, he gave his approval, and, and he gave me a big yashikach. I just want to tell you one little vignette. So he wanted to pay me back. So he called me in, and, and he liked the whole thing. He said, Ich will do batzon. And I started to babble, because I, 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 I didn't, you know. I said, Rashiva daf menish batzon. Vis nish heran ashtikl taira? So he told me um, a, a, a mimer, basically, for myself, which I don't think he ever said publicly. In appreciation for your efforts. Right, right. That was his payment, so to that speak. That was the payment. And I've used it a many private, times. A private mimer. A to private mimer. On what topic? Um, the topic was in Parashat Shlach. So it says, it says in Parashat Shlach, I'm just telling you the vignette, the, 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 the basics. Uh, in Parashat Shlach it says... Um, uh, well, it's really on a pasuk in Tehillim, and it comes from Shlach. Davan Melech in, in Kufhe and Kuvav in Tehillim reviews many things in Chumash. So when it comes to Meraglim, it says Vayisa Yoda Lahem That means that the punishment for the Meraglim was uh, basically Golos. So it's a it doesn't say any place in the Chumash. So he had a pshat, he had a mahalach, he told it to me, and to my knowledge he's never said it publicly, because it was my gift. But then when I was finished, I asked him, can, can I say it over? He said, Sivet it it was so amazing because he understood that I'm going to need it in Rabbanus. Wow. And, and because it's, it's a very beautiful pshat, of so course. So that piece that, that the Rashiva told you privately did not appear in Pachad Yitzchak in any of the I volumes? I don't think it's any place, wow. to my knowledge. 
And to Certainly. the Rav's knowledge, how many other people in the world were zeichet to get a private mimer with Rav Hutner? <laughs> I really don't know, but I was zeichet, and, and I... I uh, I cried. Hmm. I cried tears of simcha. Wow. That, that I was zeichet to this. It's, I, I, it's I, definitely I, a reflection of the Ahava, besides her appreciation, but the Ahava that the Rashiva had for you was obviously extraordinary, and you were zeichet to spend so many hours with him, you know, one on one getting a glimpse of the Rashiva that many people maybe were not zeichet to. And that's a segue to something that I wanted to ask you if, if it's okay. Sure, please. People talk about the Rashiva with a certain mysterious nature, a mystique. There was a mystique. People who knew Rav Hutner all right. talk about it. But the Rav was zeichet to see what we'll call a human side of, of Rav Hutner. If you don't mind spending a moment talking about that and maybe even a story or two that really reflects uh, that persona of Rav Hutner that maybe wasn't as publicly recognized? Well, there, there, are, there are numerous stories. Um, I, I, I had personal, uh, personal experiences with him where, where he, he shed the, the, the mystique, the mystical persona, and it was just um, guiding me through my personal life Mm-hmm. Um, he, he knew that both of my parents had been nifter before he passed away, before he was nifter. So, so he knew that I was a yasum, and, and which, which I will not go into all of that right now for many reasons. But, but, but he um, acknowledged my, my yasmus and spoke about what it means to be a yasum and how to overcome the, um, uh, the 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 the, down, the downsides of, Yas, of of Yasmus and how to turn it around and I'll never forget later I, I heard that this was one of his uh, I, I wouldn't say the word mantra to, to apply to the Rosh Hashiva but one of his his themes one of his light motifs was Sheva Yipo Tzadik Vakam so I think we're in art school I have to be very careful but he translated different than art school because that's not the Pashup Shat. So the usual translation of Sheva Yipot Tzadik Vakam is that, that despite the fact that a Tzadik fell down seven times, he'll get up. And the Yeshiva told me, Nein vile that Tzadik is gefallen, ken eshtein besser. Once you've fallen and you did get up, you're better than before. Mm-hmm. And, and he told me that in, 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 in very personal ways that, uh, I, I don't want to say it's Nevius, it was Pichas and it was, it was Gainus, but maybe there was a Ruach HaKadosh there because he told me things that I've used since four decades ago. He told me this, and I continue to use it. And he, he told me once something I didn't understand. He says, so I, I, I probably, well, let's, let's, let's talk more and but maybe it, we'll was come his, back to it. But his pshan and sheva yipol tzadik v'kom, would you say that's consistent with the Gemara of b'makam shabali tshuvim oimdim 
that they reach a, a place that, that absolutely that was consistent with yes. that that, Abs that message. Absolutely, absolutely. And and one of one of the things that I've heard from many other people, but I certainly saw in my lifetime, was that he had the ability to pick people up. And he said that's because because he experienced this. So there's something in the Sefer Zikarim that Rebbetz and David wrote over, which is so extraordinary. It's just a line or two, maybe not even two lines, one and a half lines. He said that when he got up from Shiva, I believe for the Rebbetz and Allah Shalom, so he came out and there was a tree that it was springtime that had just blossomed. He said, the Rebbein Shemot Megeshik Dem Boim, that's the Farmain Avelus and Farmain Atzvus. He said that that was sent for him to bring him out of his, his almost, I, I think he said the word depression even, but certainly his Avelus. And it was put there for me. Wow. And that was one of the lessons that I learned from him, is that in life we, we are sent messages by the Rabbi Nishalaylam, and we have to know how to figure them out. Which, which, by the way, I, I think is in the blueprints a lot, you know, things that I got from the Rashiva of that kind. Well, the Rashiva is quoted in the book no less than, what, 25 times? Something like that. And it's the Rashiva's writings and thoughts permeate all your writings, so that's not a surprise at all. Um, has the Rav ever considered doing a work solely on Rav Hutner's Torah and his outlook and Ashkafa, anything of that sort? I have, and every time I start to do it, my hand trembles. Thank God I don't have tremors, but I have tremors every time I think about doing it. I have talked to various of the Chashuvei Chaim Berlin, and they have encouraged me to do it, uh, as they encouraged me to do this book, and the, the Rashi Yeshivas, Alun Gazunstein, Rebaran, Rabbi Yenison, encouraged me very much, but I, I, I don't know. This yard site, we talked about this before a little bit, is the 40th yard site coming up in Kislev, Chav Kislev, the 40th yard site. Of Rav uh, of Rav I wrote about him on the 30th, and now I've been asked to write about him on the 40th, and I, I don't know if I'm any smarter than I was 10 years ago. But, uh, but maybe, maybe, maybe around, around now, maybe I'll, I'll consider it a little bit more. Before, when we were speaking privately, the Rav alluded to a story about the Rashiva's hat. Yes. Can you take a moment to share that with our I viewers? I should tell the story. All right. <laughs> so I was a, a, a young bacher. I was not yet married. And um, I, I had this chus of driving the Rosh Hashiva around a little bit. So I drove him to a, a, a bris. And when we got out of the car, he gave me a hat. Yankel nemdem hut. Carry his hat. Fine, no problem. Later on, I won't say who right now, but one of the also the Chashuv Echaim Berlin, um, I told him the story. He said, Yetzt bistu gevorin Talmud. So let me just explain what that means. Now you have become a Talmud of the Shiva. Because the Roshiva held, and he writes it in a number of my Marim and Shavuos and other places in various letters in the Igris, that a Talmud, it's not enough at all to learn from the Rebbe. The, the, if you'll, you'll permit me, I'll tell you a tremendous pshat that, that he said, and um, I still don't understand it, but I, I say it over. So he said it's a, it's a parsha shlema in Tanakh. Because what happened was when Elio Anovi was going to go up to Shemayim, so Elisha was chasing him. And Elisha wanted a little bit more Torah from the Rebbe. So, so Eliyahu told, told him, Lech, shuv lech, kimeo sisi lecha. So he, he, he said something very cryptic, very enigmatic, that doesn't seem to make sense. Go, what have I ever done for you? What kind of a thing is that to say to your Talmud? And he had done a lot for him. So the Rashiva said, you see that the relationship between a Rebbe and a Talmud has nothing to do with quid pro quo. 
It's not what you give, it's not what you've taught, it's essential and it's elemental. And I, it took me a while to pick that up, and I, I hope that I did, uh, among other things, because Yeshiva told me this word privately also. And what he meant was that the relationship has to be one of hano. And just to go back to the, the uh, question that you had asked me about um, going with the Rosh Hashiva and being with the Rosh Hashiva, the Rosh Hashiva wanted people to enjoy him. Mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you just a, a line. I used it in, in the Gemara the other day in Daf Yaimi. The last, some of the last Gemaras are about, in, in Shabbos, we just finished Mesech the Shabbos, are about Hespedim, Maspedim. He hated Hespedim. He hated them with a passion. He felt that they were very often false, overblown. He said that it's not good for the masbid, it's not good for the, 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 the person that was nifter. So I, I didn't hear this myself, but I heard it secondhand from somebody I trust. So uh, he was at a levaya, and the, uh, the, the, the masbid, the person that was speaking, he, he waxed very eloquent, but he forgot about the nifter. And he was saying gemaras and medrashim and beautiful stuff. So the Shiva, in something of a stage whisper, which knowing how smart the Rosh Shiva was, knew would be heard by other people, so he muttered to himself, You're not allowed to benefit from the corpse. So, so he was very, very tough about those things. Did you find that the Rosh Shiva was tempered in his praise, even of, let's say, his Rebbe, let's say, the Alta of Slavatka, or others, or was this just uh, something that he felt about Hespedim? Absolutely. He wrote about the altar, and, and if, if one reads it these days, you can see that, um, for instance, he, he wrote to his parents a beautiful, moving letter about the altar. But he said, what I mentioned before about Einar the Moedim al-Das Rabbi, he didn't say Adabayim Shnin at that time, he said, after the Rebbe is nifty, brought all sorts of rice, as a very young man he wrote this, that after the Petira, there's an opening of the Tzinairis, there's an opening of the Shemayim, and the Rebbe is able to infiltrate you, so to speak, and, and, and get into your heart and get into your soul. And he said that happened to him. So that after the altar was nifter, he now understood things that he never understood. And he explained some things at that time and over the years, many, many times. But he never mentions the altar in, in I don't think, maybe, maybe once, maybe once. Uh, Gedolim from previous, we saw Salanti mentions by name, mentions very, very few by name. I think because he was very careful about all these Gedolim, not to overdo, not to underdo, just Dvarim Kavayasin, he called it, to be exact. Now, on a personal level, you've been in Rabonis now for decades. You've seen, you've been witness to the change of the world. You've been witness to the growth here. We're sitting at Art Scroll, the growth of Art Scroll in terms of Habatza Satira that we've all benefited from. What do you see the major difference in being a Rav today and a Machanach and having been a Magachir, a Rebbe today from even just uh, 20, 30 years ago? That's an excellent, wonderful question, and I, I, I can only speak for myself. I, I, I don't speak, I, I used to be involved with Rabbanim, you know, training younger Rabbanim and, and things like that, but I, I haven't done that in a while, so I don't really know. But, but I, I can just tell you my, you know, my sense of it, and that is that there was a time when Rabbanim could get up and give Musr, and that was their job, and in fact, we find that many of those that wrote about Rabbanis over the centuries, and even millennia, said that we're like the Nevi'im of old, and you know, there's a Yeshayi, there's this, and there's a Yermia, we also have to do things like that. 
today we have to be mechazic people. And through the chizuk, and through the, um, the ava, and through the, the simchas hachayim, that we help them, they hopefully will grow. But the straight, old-fashioned, powerful musr, because the Rav is such an eloquent speaker, doesn't hold anymore. The Roshiva had a line on this, by the way. It was very interesting. He said that, um, he, he lamented a little bit that there's no more great speakers anymore. But he said, Bazei is oichnisht. So he, he told me privately, and he mentioned, he knew everything that went on in the Jewish world. So he mentioned two of the famous... Who did he mean by Zay? Who so he, he meant, he meant to? the reform, the reform and famous orators. Uh-huh. He mentioned two of them to me. I was shocked that he, he knew who they were. Uh-huh. But, but he, he had them, I write, he understood them perfectly. So he said that um, th- there's a mahalach, I, I later found it in Reb Tzaddik, I think that's what he was referring to, that there's always an equation between our enemies and ourselves. So when there is, uh, um, for instance, there's, there's a Maish Rabbeinu, there's going to be a Bilam, and vice versa. And by the, by the Tanoim, so there were the great, great philosophers, and, and we had uh, the Chachmei Hataira. But, but each time that there's a diminution, we lose something also. So, so he was talking about, in, in, in Rabbanus, that's not the point anymore to be the Godel Adar, to be the Goyen Adar. It's good, it's very important. But he told me, Mudaf Fashtein mentioned. And he told me in an incredible line, I believe it is printed someplace, but he told it to me. Well, what did he mean, Mudaf Fashtein mentioned? That we have to understand he said, people he said, I'll tell, on I'll tell one you, level. I'll, I'll tell you exactly what he said. He said that, um, so Fahana mentioned there are people that learn a Sefer, and there are people that learn, you know, Taira, whatever it is. Mudaf learning a mensch. That means to understand a person. And, and his understanding, his, we can call it psychology, but a type of psychology of human beings was incredible. He just understood people way beyond um, any visible, um, uh, let's say, psychosis or neurosis or, 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 or symptoms. He, he went down deep into their neshama and then did what was good for them, what they needed. And so he decided that there's... Um, uh, th- there's a, a story, I mean, I, I think it's made the rounds of the Chaim Berlin group, but I, I don't know if the rest of the world has heard it, where um, there was somebody that was planning to go into uh, Kailo, and he pushed him into Chinuch. And, um, and it turned out that he had a very bad stutter. And he didn't think that he, he could go into Chinuch because he could not articulate and, and the Shiva very clandestinely and, and, and um, surreptitiously um, got somebody to do speech therapy with him without the person knowing that he was getting speech therapy. And he, they became a crackerjack superstar Rebbe. But he said that in Kailo, and he, wa- he wanted desperately to go into Kailo, learn for a number of years like everybody else, and then, but he said he would have gotten lost and he would have been, I think he said, the Russian was Abalmum Farlebm. He would have been ruined for life. And the Roshiva knew what he needed, got it for him, and I, don't, I guess by now the person found out. But that's amazing that Rav Hunna had the Koyach like his own Rebbe. Yes. To channel the talents and abilities of every Talmud in their individual way, sending this one to Rabbanus, this one to Chinuch, this one to Askanus, etc., etc. And that's something that we definitely miss, that Koyach, uh, to be able to direct youngsters 
And with that, I'll, I'll come to our closing question. Sure. I think we could speak to the Rav for hours. I know I, I could. I'm enjoying talking to you. <laughs> I could go on and on uh, with, about Rav Hudner with stories. I'm sure there are many we didn't get to. Maybe we'll have to book the Rav for another session. It would be my, my honor. But, uh, just really, about Rav Hudner. Just, just about Rav Hudner. We appreciate just, you making the effort to come down here Just leave me today. out of the screen. But whether it's from Rav Hudner, whether it's from Rav Motta Weinberg, from being in the Rabbonus, if there's a message that you could give over to those of a younger generation, and I'm including those who are already married with children, those who may have married children of their own, maybe Bachram, single girls growing up in a tumultuous world. What guidance, what piece of advice, what insight could you offer to us, having seen what you've seen, having experienced what you've experienced? It's a tall order. It's a tall order, but it's a very good wise question. I wish I had as wise an answer as the question is. But um, I would say that um, none of the people that I learned from had easy lives. And the Roshiva always, this Roshiva meaning Rav Hutnas, that's how, always bemoaned the fact, and this is in print, that when we write even art scroll biographies, sometimes skip the part that um, uh, would illustrate and would uh, help the younger generation to know that everybody goes through ups and downs. So, so the, um, the line that the Roshiva said was, and I, I've published this myself, but in the Roshiva's name, that the Chafetz Chaim wrote his classic Sefer uh, to Chafetz Chaim when he was in his 20s, I believe, 25, 27, something very young. So fast forward 70, 50 years. Now the Chafetz Chaim is in his 70s. He's still writing Svarim. So you would say, wow, and if you're very from, oh, look at that. He was so brilliant when he was 25 that when he's 75, he's still writing great Svarim. No, he's so much better at 75. It's an insult to say to somebody that 50 years doesn't do anything for you. The term, so, I think, is hagiographies, right? Yes, that, yes. To where, yes. where you're skipping over the portions of growth and maybe even trial and tribulation and I think that's what the right exactly. To. And he said this about the Chafetz Chaim. And I remember people didn't like it at the time. He said this publicly, by the way, in a mimer. He alluded to this that who knew what the Chafetz Chaim's own struggles were not to speak lashon. Ooh, how could you say such a thing? No, on the contrary. So that is a very big chizuk, I think, to everybody that's struggling, because that struggling. He said this so many times. Struggling is a sign of life. No struggle is a sign of, unfortunately, of death and destruction. We appreciate that, Hadracha. We appreciate this book. The book is a masterpiece. It's a blueprint for aliyah, for growth, for self-improvement. It's, it's gives, it gives a person a good feel when it's read. Each chapter is easy to read on its own, which is also what makes the book so appealing. The book should sell well. The Rav should be zeichet to continued habatsa satayra, guiding people, influencing people, raising them up. Arichas yom and Thank you again for joining. Amen. Us. Thank you, Rabbi Hisseg of Lamar.